Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Well, hello there. This is Dee, and welcome to episode 11 of the Benzo Free Podcast. Um, so, so how are you? You know, I really hope the answer is good, but for most of you, I know better. <laughs> just, just know I'm thinking about you, and I'm, you know, I'm hoping that you're going to find this amazing window, you know, completely symptom-free, just around the corner. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for that. I'm thinking about that, and I'm hoping that's coming your way soon. Around here, I've been, you know, I've been pretty busy, busier than ever, but but it's good. It's been really good. A, a few episodes ago, I mentioned about the global reach of the podcast, and that at the time included 600 downloads in 15 separate countries, and I was overwhelmed. I couldn't believe that we had that kind of reach so far, especially in the first few weeks of the podcast. Well, it's grown a bit since then. <laughs> Um, the Benzo Free Podcast has now been downloaded over 1,300 times in 33 separate countries. Uh, I mentioned the, the 15 last time. Let me tell you um, what some of the newer ones are. We have been downloaded in India, Indonesia, Malta, Uruguay, Bulgaria, Costa Rica, Mali, the Philippines, South Africa, Bangladesh, Germany, Denmark, Guatemala, Hungary, Ethiopia, Sweden, Timor-Leste, Nepal, and Madagascar just the other day. This is just weird. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, I gotta admit. The podcast has now been downloaded on six of the seven continents on the globe, and we just need Antarctica to join in. Um, anybody, anybody know anybody in Antarctica <laughs> so we can make all seven? You know, I must admit that I really never thought anything that I worked on would would reach around the globe in such a way. And I am amazed and grateful to every one of you that it has had this kind of reach. And and please know that I'm just the guy who started this and that this is definitely not about me. I'm not saying that just to try to be humble, but I, I really want everybody to believe me when I say this is a community podcast, a community blog, a community website. And every single one of you are the contributors in one way or the other. And in fact, I'm already talking to a few of you about becoming more involved by contributing to our content. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Unfortunately, the growing reach of this podcast is not all good news. It, it only symbolizes the number of people in distress from these crazy drugs. You know, people all across the globe. And and it humbles me and it saddens me. So, well, I'm really happy that something we've created and something that I hope helps people has such a wonderful reach. I also understand that it also demonstrates the need. 
I've been in a little bit of a wave lately, and I, I wanted to share a bit of that with you. Now, now, please note that my waves are much milder than they used to be, but still, they they can influence my mood, <laughs> and my emotions are affected by these changes. You know, in addition to, to the anxiety stuff, I also have some recurring insomnia, achesthesia, paresthesia, that kind of thing. But the emotions and the anxiety, those are the, the big ones for me lately. I guess the some of these cognitive and psychological symptoms are the ones that hang on the longest. You know, I, <laughs> it's just weird for me to keep thinking, I can cry at the drop of a hat now. And anybody else have that? You know, these funny, crazy things called emotions, these these things that I've suppressed for so many years, and, and the drugs then suppressed for so many years, I, I don't know about you, but they're a lot more powerful than I ever thought they would be. And it takes all of my effort every day, e- even every hour sometimes, to try to keep them in check. I get emotional far more often now. You know, for 12 years, I was on Clonopin, and I just... I didn't realize it at the time, but I was emotionally numb. And now I'm not. And even though they're so overpowering sometimes, I'm I'm grateful for them. I, I feel like it puts me back in contact with humanity again. I'm I'm no longer this robot. I'm just this guy who has emotions like everybody else. I'm just not, I think, as experienced to handle them as most people are right now. And one of the things that I've gotten from this, I guess, empathy that's new to me is I get to correspond with each of you through the feedback form or on email, and I I can feel your pain, and I can feel connected to you. And it's not bad. I mean, I'm very sorry for what you're going through, but the connection itself makes me feel human. It makes me feel that I'm, I'm one with you, and it makes me feel connected. I don't know if this makes sense or not, but... But it feels good to have that genuine human connection with another person. Even if it's over something as painful as benzoyl withdrawal, it just feels good to be human again. And you know, I'm, I'm curious as to how many of you experienced this same thing, this flood of emotions returning. You know, I, I think I might dedicate an episode just to this topic because I've talked to a few of you and I've heard from you and realized that this is not just something I'm going through. So, so you know, let me know if you've had similar experiences. I really would like to hear from you, and I'd like to put some of that stuff together for a future episode. Thanks. Oh, oh by the way, I do want to, again, thank Elizabeth McCarthy, uh, Liz McCarthy, again, for last week's interview. She was so kind um, to take her time to talk with us, and I'm very glad she did. Please, if you have any ideas for an interview on this show of who you'd like me to talk to, please let me know. I'm, I'm lining a few up as we speak. I, I can't guarantee that people I ask will say yes, but you know, I am not afraid to ask. So tell me who you'd like to hear from, and I'll reach out to them and see if they'll come and talk to us. And don't forget, we still need feedback, as always. So you can always comment on the episode. You can visit our feedback form at benzofree.org feedback or even email us at podcast at benzofree.org. Whether you have questions or comments, changes, complaints, or just, you know, want to let me know you're wearing two different colored socks today, I don't care. Just reach out and say hi. I really do want to hear from you, and I've really enjoyed the connections that we have made. And don't forget also to subscribe for our mailing list if you get a chance, and that's at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And of course, before we move on, 
please remember that the Benzo Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. Oh, and one more suggestion. If, if you're listening to the podcast on one of the providers like iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or the others, leave feedback on that carrier if you get a chance. That does help us rise higher in the rankings so more people can find us, and, and I appreciate that. Thanks. Let's move on. And that brings us to our mailbag. I have a couple of follow-ups and a comment today, so let's get started. The first one is a follow-up um, regarding our contact from Jurg from Bern, Switzerland last week. Um, you know, one of the things I am constantly reminded of, and thankfully so, is that I am I'm relatively new to many areas of the benzo community. In fact, I, I just posted an article on the blog a couple of days ago about this topic. I spent the last five years while I was in acute and protracted withdrawal researching and writing my book. Some of that time was spent on benzo discussion boards, but outside of that, I was very isolated. I had, I had a lot of triggers and I had a lot of fear. Last August, I finally released my book and the website and podcast soon followed. So I've only been truly active in the benzo community for about seven months now. Now, the reason I bring that up is that I'm still naive in many things benzo. While no one knows everything about the subject, there are many who know a lot and, and who have dedicated much of their lives to helping raise awareness, educate medical professionals and patients alike, and support those of us who suffer. You know, some of these people have founded, you know, organizations or charities, discussion groups, and even helped change laws and have done so many things for so many people. The reason I mention this is that even though I wrote a book on this subject and host a podcast does not mean I am an expert in any way or means. There are hundreds of people around the world who have been supporting the benzo community far longer than I have and who know far more than I do. And just from me, I want to thank them because they are the ones who helped me get to where I am now. A perfect example of this was the comment from Jörg in Bern, Switzerland last week. He, he is the caregiver of his wife, Ruth, and was looking for resources, if you remember. He, he was especially looking for German-speaking resources um, who have experience with benzos. During the podcast, I asked if anyone out there knows of something like this or could be of help to Jörg. Well, within hours of the launch of that episode, we got a response. Someone from WBAD, which is World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day, was kind enough to comment on our Facebook page regarding options for Jörg. One of them was becoming a WBAD country representative. Another was, was starting his own Facebook discussion group. And, and also, they mentioned the Inner Compass and their grassroots community program called the Withdrawal Project. I'm researching each one of these options, and I'm sure you'll be seeing some new additions to our website and focus on some of them in upcoming episodes. But I have also emailed these off to Jörg, and he was very grateful for the feedback. And I need to thank you for that. So, so to wrap up on that follow-up item, please remember that I'm just a student here, like, like so many of you, and, and I'm willing and eager to learn. I need you, the listeners, and the other activists and organizers and medical professionals and patients to, to be my teachers. So, so teach me. Benzofree.org slash feedback. I look forward to hearing from you. And our next item in the, in the mailbag is a follow-up um, on some correspondence that I've had with a few of you listeners in the past week. Actually, two specifically, who both have mentioned taking Cipro during their dependence and withdrawal. And this really surprised me. 
I know I spoke briefly about this in an earlier episode, but this is truly concerning. And I need to take every chance, I think, to mention this and to clarify it because it's really that important. So please bear with me for a second. When I first started having groin and abdominal pain during my withdrawal, a a GI doc wrongly diagnosed me with prostatitis and prescribed Cipro or Ciprofloxin HCL. I took the drug without even thinking twice about it. I mean, I figured it was an antibiotic, and I've had antibiotics before, so why would there be a problem? These are some of the most common drugs prescribed. Of course, after my experience with clonopin, you would think I would have been smarter than that. <laughs> and I wasn't. Unfortunately, ciprofloxacin is part of a class of antibiotics called fluoroquinolones or quinolones. It wasn't until I was writing my book that I saw a warning about these drugs in the Ashton Manual. In the Ashton Manual supplement from April of 2011, Professor Ashton stated the following, quote, Antibiotics, for some reason, sometimes seem to aggravate withdrawal symptoms. However, one class of antibiotics, the quinolones, actually displace benzodiazepines from their binding sites on GABA receptors. These can precipitate acute withdrawal in people taking or tapering from benzodiazepines. It may be necessary to take antibiotics during benzodiazepine withdrawal, but if possible, the quinolones should be avoided. End quote. Even for people who aren't tapering from benzos or even been on benzos, there are plenty of warnings about quinolones from the FDA that should cause concern to the average person. The Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, in the U.S. has issued a black box warning, their strongest type of warning for fluoroquinolones, and they've released repeated warnings over the last 10 years. In May of 2016, the FDA advised to restrict their use, warning that they may cause sudden, severe, and potentially permanent nerve damage called peripheral neuropathy, along with other side effects like joint or tendon pain, muscle weakness, and a sensation of pins and needles. Familiar symptom to those of us in benzo withdrawal. The FDA has also warned about disabling effects such as tendinopathy, tendon rupture, and glucose homeostasis especially in elderly or diabetic patients. Then in 2017, 18, and 19, the FDA released continued new warnings about the possibility of aortic ruptures and tears. Although rare, they can cause an aneurysm and even death. Biochemist Brad Verrett wrote the following in his 2017 BIC blog post, titled, Hidden Dangers of Fluoroquinolone Antibiotics in the Benzodiazepine-Dependent Population. In that article, he said, quote, It is well known that chronic benzodiazepine usage often creates chemical sensitivities which require the affected individuals to avoid a variety of foreign substances which most normal people can tolerate. And fluoroquinolones probably fall at the very top of that list. All doctors should be aware that prescribing a fluoroquinolone to a benzodiazepine-dependent individual carries a serious risk for disability, which could potentially be permanent, end quote. So I, I really wanted to cover this one more time just to make sure, you know, people hear this, because this is one of those things that can help and can help you avoid further complications during withdrawal. I put a link to this article in our show notes, and I, I do want to mention one thing on a quick side note. 
that the author of this article, Bradley Verrett, um, actually passed away back in 2017. And, and even though I never got to meet him, I, I, I mourn his, his loss along with his friends at the BIC. If we learn nothing else from our experience with benzodependence and withdrawal, it's this, I think. We need to take responsibility for our own bodies and what we put in them. I know that I will never blindly take another prescription drug without researching it in depth. We should be partners with our doctors, not just patients. And we have the right to question and even get a second opinion if we choose. But please keep in mind, I am not a medical professional and I'm not giving medical advice. I am just telling you my thoughts. Let's move on to our last item in the mailbag. This comment came from Anne in Canton, Michigan, USA. She says, quote, Today was the first time listening to your podcast, and it will clearly not be the last. Many thanks for taking the time to bring this valuable resource to those of us proceeding along the Benzo journey. It really is true that if you persist and believe in recovery, that you will come away from this stronger, more insightful, and wiser. A topic for a future podcast would be discussing benzodependency versus addiction. In the psychiatric world, there are very clear criteria as to what constitutes addiction, and a large number of us really had dependence issues, not those of addiction. This has implications for approach to treatment while weaning off the med, support afterwards, and the issue of being able to get long-term care insurance. Much of the literature concerning relapse like any of us would ever touch this class of drugs again, concerns people with polysubstance abuse or significant psychiatric comorbidities. An expert who could address these issues and hopefully provide current data, if any exists, as to relapse rates for those who were only physically dependent would be appreciated. End quote. Well, thank you, Anne. This is a great comment and suggestion. I, I touched on this in our mailbag section in a previous episode, but... Only very lightly. I, I think you're right. It deserves a lot more time. This is a critical issue for so many in the benzo community, and the insurance angle is another aspect which is vital. In fact, I've been helping another listener on an insurance appeal this past week, and, and I'll highlight that in an upcoming episode also. But this is a great topic, and you know I'm going to start figuring out how to plan this and looking into it. Thanks for the comment, and. And thanks for the good news about your recovery. I'm, I'm sure it will help many others who are listening. And that wraps up the mailbag, so let's move on to our Benzo News. Here are the highlights of the week. Last Wednesday, I wrote a blog post celebrating International Happiness Day and the release of the World Happiness Report. In that, I reminded all of us that finding something to be happy about, even in the midst of Benzo withdrawal, can help raise your spirits even just a little bit. And I think that's important to keep in mind. On Friday, we reposted an article from BIC titled, A New Patient-Initiated Coalition Battles Benzos. This 2016 article was by top psychiatrist Alan Francis, who also wrote, Yes, Benzos Are Bad For You, which I highlighted in our Facebook page a couple of weeks ago. In this second article, Dr. Francis discusses iotrogenic illness and benzodiazepine information coalition, as they were just getting started. On Sunday, I wrote a short blog post about my naivete in being new to the benzo community, as I mentioned in the introduction. 
and on Monday I reposted another article titled The Tip of the Iotrogenic Benzodiazepine Iceberg by Nicole Lamberson. This article also dived into the subject of iotrogenic illness and provided some real amazing references to other articles and scientific studies. If you if you want to dive in and dig into a lot of different information on this subject, this is a great place to start. And that's it for the week. Remember, if you know of any other great articles or news that you would like us to cover, please tell us. We are always looking for news stories about benzo dependence, recovery, or any related subject matter. And that's it for the news. Let's move on to our spotlight. Last week, I sort of skipped over some of the organizations which BenzoFree works with, like BIC and WBAD, and I want to correct that oversight. These are some amazing groups, and I want to cover them in our spotlight section briefly. I say briefly because I will cover some of these groups in depth in future episodes, but for now, I just want to provide an introduction. Today, I want to cover BIC. Yes, in the past, I have referred to them as the BIC, but I was wrong. And I'm happy to make that correction now. It's just BIC or BIC. So when I asked for information about BIC, this is what Janice Curl, the organization's founder, shared with me. She said, quote, Our coalition consists of harmed patients, medical professionals, and even harmed medical professionals. We are the people who are telling this story the way it needs to be told, from the patient perspective. We're doing our own research on the impact of this problem and have been on several media major outlets with more to come. We'd love more support from the harm patients out there, like following our social media and joining the mail list on our site. End quote. BIC is a nonprofit organization whose board of directors consists of Janice Curl along with Dr. Christy Huff and attorney Stephen Lacourt. Their general and advisory board consists of 18 total members combined. In my experience, BIC is one of the most highly respected organizations in the Benzo community and continually does amazing work. They have combined medical professionals and patients alike into a very effective and driven organization, which is truly making a difference every day. And their blog is one of the most active and effective online. With such a wealth of expertise in their organization, it's easy to understand why. Look, I might sound like I'm a bit enamored by BIC, but please remember that I am still a skeptic at heart and I'm not easily swayed. The reason I say good things about BIC is for one reason only. They are a group of dedicated professionals who are making a difference in the media, in doctor's offices, and in the lives of patients. So please, check them out. It's Benzodiazepine Information Coalition at BenzoInfo.com. Thanks. And that brings us to Benzo Stories. I told you we would have some international stories coming up, and today we do. Today's story is from Beatrice in Zurich, Switzerland. Beatrice and I have actually been corresponding for a little while now. She first reached out to me last November, asking about translations of my book in German. As you may recall, I, I moved this story to today because I didn't want to edit it down too much, so... That's why I'm providing it here. You see, Beatrice was first prescribed Librix. Now, now many of you have not heard of that one. Its, its generic name is chlorodiazepoxide, which also goes by the brand name of Librium. Yes, Librium, the very first benzo to be released to the public in 1960, even before Valium. Beatrice's benzo story goes back to the mid-70s, 
And, and it's a story I believe needs to be told. So I apologize if this story is longer than most of the others. I sometimes trim down the longer stories for the podcast, but considering this one spans almost 45 years, I think it's worth leaving most of it in. Still, before we dive in, I need to explore Zurich very quickly. <laughs> I couldn't miss out on this opportunity. <laughs> I think you probably saw that coming. I mean, this is Switzerland, okay? I mean, how could I not take a mini virtual tour of Switzerland before we hear from Beatrice? So, you know, the sad thing is I've never been to Switzerland. I mean, honestly, I've never been to Europe. I know, I got to get out more often. But it's not for lack of interest, trust me. I, I dream of going to Europe and I dream of visiting Switzerland. It's at the top of my bucket list. You know, perhaps I'm just dreaming here, but in the coming years, as we make these great strides in changing the Benzo landscape, we will have a conference in Zurich and we can all meet there. Wouldn't that be awesome? And, and you know, and since we'll all be Benzo free by then, traveling will be a cinch, so it won't be a problem getting there. I couldn't resist pulling up a few photos of Zurich and taking this virtual tour just for fun. Zur Zurich sits on the north end of Lake Zurich. In addition to being the largest city in Switzerland and a global financial center, Zurich has often been ranked as one of the top 10 most livable cities in the world. The architecture and the lakefront blend seamlessly together, and their Alstadt area, or Old Town, has these cobblestone streets lined with amazing-looking shops and cafes. All I know is that after this mini-virtual tour, I have to visit Zurich. Tell you what, I'll see you at the conference. But first... Let's hear from Beatrice. She says, quote, I am a 60-year-old woman, former teacher, nurse, religion teacher, living with my husband near Zurich, Switzerland. Our two children are adults. My daughter is an anesthetist, and my son is a mechanical engineer. At the age of 16, I took a benzo for the first time. The doctor of my parents gave me chlorodiazepoxide, Librix, against my intestinal problems. I took it over the following eight years once, twice a year, one pill. This was no problem. Nobody knew at that time anything about possible dangers. Even my mother gave me from time to time one of her Valiums she took for sleeping and menstrual disorders. But I consumed them very rarely. Then, working as a nurse in several hospitals, doctors prescribed Valiums specially for heart patients. But sleeping pills were very common. I knew them, but I was not informed about their danger. I lived a busy life with two children, part-time working first as a nurse, then as a religion teacher in our Catholic church. In 1999, I began to study theology part-time with the goal of becoming a spiritual teacher. I have to admit that I always had a hard time with my mother. She was very often depressed and ill, and my father was overwhelmed. I, as a nurse, took over very often. It was exhausting. Then in 2003, a car crashed into my standing car at 65 miles an hour. From that date on, my life changed dramatically. I knew Valium as a substance for muscle relaxation, so my doctor prescribed it for 13 years against headaches. He gave me citalopram to prevent addiction. At first, I could manage my life, but from year to year, my life got more difficult. I lost the ability to feel anything. As a very sportive woman, I lost my joy of running, swimming, dancing, and singing. I began to play drums but had to stop. It was too loud. 
I took too many glasses of wine to cope with my nervousness, and I asked my doctor three times a year if it was no danger for me to take this Valium. He denied it every time. Even my neurologist wasn't aware of the consequences. I felt dizzy quite often. I changed my job, quit my work as daycare mother, was always exhausted, tried to recover by going to wellness weekends, played sports, went to the gym with no effect. I almost finished my studies. Only two years would have been to go, but I had to quit in 2007. I always thought that all these concentration problems were due to my car accident, and now I know that everything came probably from the Valium. In 2008, I quit my job in the church and an after-school unit for children I co-developed, which was a big success. I had heart problems and had to take medications against high blood pressure. Finally, I had to leave with tears in my eyes. In 2012, I took one year off for recovery, but still I had to take the citalopram and the Valium. I played more sports and was fitter. I took a workshop, biographical writing, and had a first shock. I had to Google what a feeling was. I was not able to feel anything. I felt numb. And then on holiday in Hawaii, the second shock. I was so afraid to go into the sea. That was completely crazy because I am a very, very good swimmer since childhood. What was going on with me? A burnout? Depression? Back in Switzerland, these fear symptoms persisted. I was dizzy and afraid of almost everything. And in December, I got very depressed. Then my doctor told me that I suddenly had to get rid of the Valium. That was the start of a five-year absolute nightmare. I flew to a clinic in the hope that the psychiatrist could tell me what strange illness I had. They told me that I was a very strong woman with a burnout. The little amount of five milligrams Valium were no problem to get off. They tapered me down to two milligrams. Then I went home without any Valiums. I thought that was easy. But the following years were filled with a reinstatement of benzos about seven new psych drugs, and four times in the clinic to change medications. Every time I heard that I was psychologically healthy but overtired, I believed them, just wondering why I got more and more ill. In 2014, I was so bad that they put me on two very strong medications intravenously. I lost 20 pounds, had three months of diarrhea, and wanted to die. My family and friends were completely unaware of what was going on. I then changed doctors for the worst. One gave me Xanax, one milligram, and said it would be easy to leave it. The other gave me Traxilium, which is clorazepate, another benzo, and neural therapy. I did yoga and was looking for spiritual help to come out of this hell. In 2016, I flew to a farm. They offered places for people with drug or mental problems. Thank God I found a nice family with four children and many animals. There I found some peace. I was not alone, but was still taking Traxilium and an antidepressant. In the summer of 2016, I felt quite strong and went to another clinic for tapering the Traxilium. There, a German psychologist told me that benzo withdrawal was the worst of all withdrawals, much more terrible than heroin, cocaine, or alcohol. In Berlin, they had people in withdrawal up to six months in the clinics. I was shocked. 
but I tried it. In six weeks, I was off the medications, the benzos and the antidepressants. In January 2017, I could not cope with all the terror, headaches, nerve sensations, so I took again a small amount of Traxilium till June, and then I left it from one moment to the other. My husband and I were completely exhausted. The following months were very, very difficult. And now, 20 months off the drug, I still suffer. Severe concentration problems, fatigue, dizziness, weakness of the body, and head pressure. Last summer, I was able to swim almost two miles, and a few days after, I felt weak. But deep inside of me, there are these very, very happy moments of relief. A deep freedom is showing up, an idea of how life could be. And in these windows, I smell nature, feel strong, and and make plans for the future. I am glad for all the support of these podcasts and other benzo groups. It is sad that in Switzerland, nothing like this exists. For me, it is very important to be informed now, to know what is going on in my brain. I read with big interest your book, Dee, and I want to give it to my two clinics. They didn't hear of Professor Ashton. It is a long journey, but I really hope seeing the end one day. I have learned a lot about what is really important in life. And to be very, very grateful for my family and friends who are on my side in this most difficult time in my life. Not all are understanding of me, but I don't think that anybody can really understand what we are going through. Thank you, Dee, for all your effort and work for doing these podcasts. With warm greetings from Switzerland, to everybody out in the world, Beatrice. End quote. Thank you very much for that, Beatrice. I, I hope, again, as with all the stories I share, that I did it justice. I am truly grateful that you you shared your story with us and, and for our ongoing correspondence. I have really enjoyed getting to know you better. So please, write again soon. I look forward to hearing from you. And remember, we still need stories, short ones, long ones, whatever you have. These stories are integral to this podcast. And sharing your story, allowing others to hear it, I truly believe is part of your healing process. So so go to our feedback form at benzofree.org slash feedback, or just email it to me at podcast at benzofree.org. Thanks. Today's feature is Benzo Belly, our gut in withdrawal. Today we continue our series on the symptoms of withdrawal. We kicked this off with an introduction to benzodiazepine symptoms a few weeks ago. And then two weeks ago, we spoke about anxiety, which is the granddaddy of all psychological symptoms. If you'd like to catch more to this series, please go back and check out those episodes. But today we're going to jump from the psychological category of symptoms to the physical category. I break down the physical symptoms of benzo withdrawal to the following seven groups. One, abdominal and gastrointestinal symptoms. Two, eyes, ears, nose, and mouth symptoms. Three, Symptoms of the head and neck area. Four, symptoms in the heart and lungs. Five, muscular symptoms. Six, nerve sensations. And seven, immune and endocrine symptoms. And today, we're going to take a look at that first one. We're going to talk about our gut, or more specifically, abdominal and gastrointestinal symptoms. This one may not be quite as prevalent as anxiety and withdrawal, but it's close. (laughs) 
Symptoms in this group include abdominal pain, appetite change, benzo belly, constipation, diarrhea, distension, inflammation, nausea, groin pain, menstrual difficulties, pelvic floor dysfunction, urinary difficulties, vomiting, and weight change. Now, that's a lot to cover today, <laughs> so please understand if we don't dig too deep. And we're just going to kind of touch on each one of these, share some personal examples, and just talk about them in general. Now, abdominal issues are some of the more common symptoms in withdrawal, but they're also some of the most debilitating and even visible, as in abdominal distension. Most of us know that our gut takes a big hit during withdrawal. And, you know, this makes sense because our, our central nervous system is closely linked with our digestive system. In addition, GABA and GABA receptors are found throughout the GI tract. Our brains and guts actually share similar tissue. In fact, in addition to GABA, about 90% of the serotonin in the body is located in the gut. So the fact that the gut takes a big hit during benzo withdrawal should not be a big surprise. You know, let's look at the different symptoms here. Let's start with abdominal pain. Pain in the abdominal area is quite common in withdrawal. It's, the cause isn't always known, but most of the time it appears to be related to the gastrointestinal tract. And it can range from mild nuisance to severe pain. And, and it seems to be influenced by diet, anxiety, and even the randomness of your withdrawal waves, like most of our symptoms. Appetite and weight change. Now, Ashton has stated that considerable weight loss of 8 to 10 pounds or more can occur during withdrawal. Now, now since benzos can increase appetite, this could be a rebound effect. But gastric distress might also cause especially the weight loss in so many people when they're forced to adapt their diet to manage their symptoms. Constipation. Constipation can occur during withdrawal and is often aggravated by something called overbreathing, which we will talk about at a later time. Natural laxatives and hydration can help with this condition. Distension and inflammation. Now, one of the most surprising and, and frightening symptoms of withdrawal can be abdominal distension. Both men and women have experienced significant and sometimes painful distension, even to the point of appearing to be in the late stage of pregnancy. This is usually experienced in conjunction with digestive difficulties, which causes inflammation in the area. But it's not a permanent condition. You know, when I was regularly on one of the discussion boards, not, not too long ago, I chatted often with a young man from Ireland. We had wonderful conversations, but he was very distraught. He suffered from extreme abdominal distension, and, and he was worried that it would never return to normal. I did everything I could to help ease his mind, but my efforts were often fruitless. He even sent me pictures of his belly, which I was surprised by. The, the degree of the distension was excessive. I mean, he looked pregnant, and, and in the late stages of pregnancy at that. I had some distension during my withdrawal, but nothing like what this young man had gone through. I, I have not heard from him in a little while, but, you know, if you're still out there, I hope you're doing okay, and please reach out. I would love to hear from you. The next group is gastritis, diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. What a nice collection that is. Symptoms common with irritable bowel syndrome, gastritis, acid reflux, and others can be quite prevalent, and it just makes sense. Our whole digestive system can be out of whack. Yes, that's the scientific name for it, out of whack. But this is common. 
And because of the number of GABA receptors and it's linked to the central nervous system, it just takes a big hit during withdrawal. Groin pain is another big factor. The upper abdomen is not the only location to experience pain during withdrawal. The lower abdomen does too, and the groin. Inflammation of the gut can affect the lower abdomen almost as much as the upper. Factors that also come into play include chronic muscle tightness and injury. Now, as for menstrual difficulties, we we will discuss menstrual difficulties in more depth in the immune and endocrine system section at a later date. And in fact, I hope to have a female join me in that discussion, as we do, especially a professional, since my experience is limited um, for hopefully obvious reasons in this area. But you know what? Let's give it a very brief intro here anyway. Benzos and benzodiazepine withdrawal can play havoc on a woman's menstrual cycle, including irregular periods, cessation of periods, bleeding between cycles, and increased breast pain. Women do need to be cautious of anemia and other complications during this time if their cycles become too frequent. There are some connections between progesterone and the GABA receptors which may attribute to this. And that brings us to pelvic floor dysfunction, and, and this has been a common diagnosis in women for some time now, and it's rapidly becoming more common in men as well, including myself, actually. This can be aggravated by or even first appear during withdrawal um, due to the effects that benzo withdrawal has on the tightness of our muscles and on inflammation in the area. This is not unforeseen and can be quite common. And the last one is urinary difficulties. Increased urinary frequency can be common with benzo withdrawal. Urgency, leaking, and even the inability to urinate are also quite prevalent. And this can often be tied in with other symptoms in this group like pelvic floor dysfunction and inflammation of the gut. So that's kind of a brief overview of some of the groups of symptoms in this category. I'm sure there are more, but we're going to keep it to these for now. You know, let's start off with the big one, benzo belly. Many have heard the term benzo belly. Much like benzo rage and others, it's a symptom which is so common that it has its own name. Benzo belly refers to the whole compilation of symptoms of the digestive tract that are the result of benzo use and withdrawal. Many people have no problems at all with digestion during withdrawal, while others have chronic discomfort and wind up on a very limited diet. Food intolerances can also become a big factor. Some people have been known to develop or increase their intolerance for certain foods during withdrawal, even though allergy tests you know, rarely show positive results in this regard. Diet and anxiety management appear to be the most effective measures of calming benzo belly. Many people have reduced their diets just down to two or three foods for a while, just so they could avoid the distress. Benzo belly was a big one for me. In fact, of this category of symptoms, I have had, let's see, abdominal pain, weight change, distension, lots of inflammation, gastritis, diarrhea, groin pain, pelvic floor dysfunction, and yes, urinary problems. I think the only two groups I haven't had were constipation and menstrual difficulties. So, You know what? I thought I'd share some of my own experiences here just to personalize this struggle a bit. I hope you don't mind, but since this was a big one for me, I hope that my my experiences will help. You see, I've had chronic digestive problems for most of my life. I I had my first upper GI when I was six months old and my first pre-ulcer at the age of five. 
acid reflux, gastritis, and IBS have been with me most of my life. In fact, I've lived my whole life making sure I always knew where the bathroom was, wherever I go. I know it's embarrassing to say that, but here I am and I'm saying it. This is not something I would say on the first date with someone or or on the second or third or etc. <laughs> but as I mentioned on this podcast, I'm honest warts and all. And for me, this is one big ass wart. <laughs> okay. You know, most of the time I could cover for my digestive problems. In fact, it didn't really happen that often. But when it did, it was usually in the worst place possible because it was often caused by my nervousness, which which is exactly when you don't want to have digestive problems, which is when you're nervous like that first date. Thankfully, I went through my complete taper without any new digestive problems, um, and I was really happy to say that I didn't have to add that symptom to my list. But unfortunately, I spoke too soon. When my taper ended, new symptoms kicked in. After being benzo-free for a few months, I started to have stomach issues. Uh, My diet became more and more restricted. I I had already cut out alcohol and caffeine, and I just added sugar to my limitations. I actually lived off chicken and white rice for several months since it was the only thing that would settle. There were days when my stomach would churn and gurgle all day long nonstop, and nothing would calm it down. Abdominal pain was also quite common, it, and it severely limited my physical activity. It hurt to bend, to walk, especially to do yoga. I found myself more and more housebound every day. While I could attribute my stomach churning, cramping, and pain to benzo belly, the, the chronic pain in my groin and lower abdomen, that was more of a mystery to me. I mean, I went to all kinds of doctors. I had tests, examinations. And eventually, I kind of developed my own theory as to the contributing factors for my lower abdominal distress. So I came up with this theory, and I ran it by a doctor and even my physical therapist, and they were all on board, and we started to treat it. I believe I was suffering from pelvic floor dysfunction, which was aggravated by hyperactive nerves, constant abdominal inflammation, chronic muscle tightness, and gastric distress, all of which had been caused or irritated by benzodiazepine withdrawal. After a series of GI doctors, physical therapists, and my ongoing experience, it's the only diagnosis that made sense to me. But still, it's honestly just a guess. Anyway, most of my digestive symptoms have actually eased, and I can generally eat a regular diet now. In fact, my stomach is actually somewhat better than it was prior to benzos. (laughs) Go figure. I was actually able to stop taking my stomach meds during my withdrawal, which is a really good thing. The most consistent solutions that I've seen work for benzo belly symptoms are these two things. Number one, reduce anxiety. And that's the truth for almost every symptom from withdrawal. Anxiety only makes it worse. I know this is easier said than done, but it's worth the effort to put the time into reducing anxiety. And number two, limiting your diet and removing food types that appear to cause issues. Most people find they can control their symptoms enough to get through this stage until their gut fully heals. But I would approach this with caution since a limited diet can also cause a nutrition deficiency. Just like most things in withdrawal, you need to find out what works for you. 
It really is different for each person. I see it so many times it's almost funny, but everyone is different. Everyone is different. And the only way to find out what works for you is through trial and error. (laughs) But in case you're curious, though, the most common food types and drink types that people reduce during withdrawal are alcohol, caffeine, and severely limiting sugar. So if you're trying to find a trigger food for you, perhaps start with those and work your way down. But remember, I'm not a nutritionist and I'm not trained in this stuff. So this is just things I have seen and what has worked for me. One of the things I found that worked for me during withdrawal was kefir milk um, or kefir milk or kefir milk, depending on who you ask. I mentioned this back in episode nine in response to a question in the mailbag section. I'd never heard of kefir milk before withdrawal, but someone said it worked for them on the benzo boards and I was desperate, so I gave it a chance. For those of you who are not familiar, kefir grains are a yeast bacterial fermentation starter and can be used to produce probiotic water, milk, and other substances. So I tried kefir milk and I must say it helped me. In fact, I continued to drink it until about a month ago. It even helped me stop taking my Prilosec, which is my stomach medication, and I had been on that for over a decade. Now, now before you jump to this, here's the caveat. This worked for me. I can almost guarantee something else will work for you. It might be this, but most likely it's going to be something else. I'm, I'm telling you this story about kefir milk here as an example of how I found out what worked for me. I'm not recommending this to anyone. Some people have said that kefir milk actually made their symptoms worse, so you need to be careful. And as with all fermented beverages, kefir milk may contain minute amounts of alcohol. So if this is a concern of yours during withdrawal, please keep that in mind. But the main takeaway from this is find what works for you and work with your doctor and nutritionist. I still experience problems now and then, and I limit my sugar, caffeine, and alcohol still. But these are just good rules for a healthy diet anyway. As for the constant churning, it's now gone. And for the most part, I'm back on a normal diet. Unfortunately, the pain in the lower abdomen, it still comes and goes. And it can include urinary difficulties too. (laughs) Oh, so joyful on that one. In fact, unlike my digestive problems, which have improved since withdrawal, the urinary ones are new and they've continued on along with recurring lower abdominal pain. But they are just symptoms, and I work around them. And I believe that over time, they too will subside. So that wraps up our feature today, Benzo Belly, Our Gut in Withdrawal. I hope that was informative for you and provided you some of the information you were looking for. Please let me know what you think about today's episode. And we will, again, continue the series of symptoms in upcoming episodes. So look for those. And let's move on to our closing. Before we get too far, we do need to squeeze in the disclaimer. And here it is. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. Okay. Our next episode is episode 12, and it will be released next Wednesday. We should have some interviews coming in pretty soon, so look for those too. 
Thank you again for joining me today, and please let me know how we did. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.